New year, new you. Maybe this year you resolve to live a cleaner, greener life. You might have committed to taking public transit, to biking more, to supporting environmental organizations financially or via volunteering. If you're taking any of those steps, thank you. When so much of the environmental news seems grim, it can be easy to forget that each of us is capable of real impact. Now, speaking of the time of year, we've just wrapped up the busiest retail season. So much of these holidays is focused on gifts, giving, buying, receiving. And we often don't think about how those items get into our hands. Before we can go shopping, we have to have shipping, and a huge portion of those goods arrive in the U.S. by water. Once the shipping containers holding all of our Furbies and Barbies and ugly sweaters are unloaded at ports, they're moved again, and often by heavy-duty diesel trucks. The problem with all those goods on all of those trucks is that they aren't clean. Heavy trucks are massive polluters, and they cause tremendous harm to anyone who lives or works near heavy truck transportation hubs. Everything from heart disease to asthma to cancer and even premature births and deaths can be linked to air pollution from vehicles like these. People nearest ports and heavy truck routes are often lower income and frequently are communities of color or immigrants. The need to electrify our country's trucks is urgent as our climate crisis runs into our online, on-demand shopping and shipping culture. Me buying moisturizer online shouldn't shorten the lifespan of someone living near the port of Los Angeles. Since I always want to give you, our listeners, rays of light amidst the doom and gloom, I've declared January to be Clean Transportation Month here at This Is Science. Today's episode starts with, surprise, corporate efforts to green our country's fleets. It's time to put the pedal to the metal, and in the words of Rihanna, shut up and drive. I'm your host, Jess Phoenix, and this is Science. Today's conversation is with Adam Browning, the Executive Vice President of Policy for Forum Mobility, a startup company that's working to electrify trucks that transport goods from ports to locations relatively close by. It's a type of trucking known as drayage. Forum is creating charging hubs for these heavy-duty electric trucks, and they're also offering electric trucks on lease to drivers. Now, with the majority of California's drayage fleet driven by individual people who own their trucks, making that state-mandated switch from diesel to electric trucks is a huge challenge, as well as an environmental and economic justice issue. Adam, thanks so much for speaking with me today, and I'd like to start by explaining the scope of the problem you and Forum are trying to help solve. So if you want to give us some facts uh, about the state of shipping goods and materials today, that would be great. <laughs> sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. I'm excited to uh, spend a little time talking about a subject near and dear to my heart. Uh, you call it, you know, electrifying drayage or, you know, pull back a bit like this is the pointy end of the spear on how we get to zero emission freight across the board. Um, so yeah, Forum Mobility is focused on uh, this you know, particular segment of the heavy-duty freight called drayage. And 
we do this, uh, you know, this was really catalyzed by the California Air Resources Board, uh, who has passed some broad regulations uh, that will, you know, by 2050, eventually get a transformation of, uh, of all, all freight uh, to zero emissions. But it singled out drayage uh, for a, an intense early focus. And um, uh, that's because, I think, a couple of reasons. One is... Uh, the impacts on our port communities. Like these are big heavy duty diesel trucks that go uh, in and out of ports right next to a lot of people and the impacts are non-trivial. And then secondly, uh, this is a segment of freight that is seen as potentially, you know, easiest to transition in that um, they're generally short haul uh, are around 100 or 200 miles a day. And it's a uh, hub and spoke. Generally, this fleet um, goes out, does its business, and comes back. Uh, and that is easier to figure out charging rather than you know over the road where you're going from Oakland to Chicago uh, and every night in a new place. So in California, there are about 33,000 trucks on the drayage registry. So these are your Class 8 semis. These are your, your big rigs. And uh, starting January 1 of 2024, if you want to bring a new truck on that registry, it has to be zero emission. By 2035, uh, the entire fleet has to be zero emission. So this is um, a, a, a huge transformation. This is like uh, a, a generational shift equivalent to our horse and buggy days uh, going to the internal combustion engine. And uh, um, we're, you know, just to provide a little more context, like this year, there are less than 200 zero emission class eight semi trucks on the road in California. And soon uh, we have to go to the thousands and then the tens of thousands uh, in a really relatively short period of time. That is um, a massive undertaking. So, that segues perfectly into my next question for you, which is how on earth are all of these uh, fleets and then individual owner operators, how are they supposed to make this work? I mean, aren't electric trucks more expensive to purchase up front than diesel? Yeah, there's a couple of pieces to the puzzle here. And one you hit on right now is like in drayage, about 80% are independent owner operators. These are generally pretty small shops. It's Jess's truck, not necessarily Jess's trucking. They're generally driving very old vehicles and they are often, you know, not well capitalized with a, a ton of resources. Other part of the challenge, of course, so is that the this is nascent new technology. The trucking industry has known this is coming from a very long time and has had a lot of time to prepare. Um, yet, just like your passenger vehicles, like, you know, Five years ago, there wasn't, uh, besides Tesla, there wasn't a ton of options. And it is really sort of nascent technology for the truck manufacturers. Then the third piece of this puzzle here is the fueling infrastructure. So this uh, zero emission doesn't necessarily equal battery electric trucks. It could also be the hydrogen fuel cell. I will say the technology for the trucks and the fuel availability for the battery electrics is much more ready for the, the battery electric rather than the fuel cell. But you're spot on. These trucks are very expensive. They are much more 
costly initially. Now, the flip side here is that the prognosis and the prospect for bringing down those costs are very good. Um, as we've collectively scaled up electrification, the amount of money that is going into new battery technology and new battery manufacturing capacity is mind-boggling. And so we do expect that uh, there's a much longer-term future of significant cost reductions. And the electric trucks are cheaper to maintain and cheaper to operate, the, the fueling. And there is also policy support for uh, bringing down the costs of fueling as well. So the hope is, is that uh, you can provide a trucking solution that competes favorably with diesel. And I'm happy to say that with incentives with the subsidies that California has pulled together uh, in California, we are able to make a, a provide a, a truck or a charging experience that um, is in the ballpark of diesel operations. The goal then, of course, is to be able to provide that as the incentives gradually roll off, that you have a market transition and that you're able to continue this at a cost discount. We define success as uh, clean air for our communities, a safe climate, and lower costs per mile for truckers. I, I do think that long experience in uh, climate tech and nothing succeeds unless it makes people's life better from day one. And uh, that's the, the entire enterprise here is like, how do you provide this transformative technology in a way that um, gets buy-in from all segments by being lower cost, by uh, delivering a better product right out the gates? It's a very admirable set of goals. And so I do want to dig in a little bit to the electric truck itself, because I read from your, your company's website that Forum is also leasing out actual trucks. So there is, it's kind of this one-stop shop model that Forum is offering. So you've got these, the trucks, the the charging access and the electricity. So I wanna go into the whole package a little later. Right now, I just wanna say, okay, what is the performance of an electric truck like? I, what is, how is that different? I know what the difference between my Chevy Volt and my Chevy Blazer, which is an internal combustion engine car. I know the the difference between that, that performance is significant. I mean, there's the more torque, it's quieter, and it feels like a spaceship still. <laughs> so what is that? What's, what's the range on these electric trucks? Um, what's the in-cab experience? I mean, just give us the scoop. <laughs> sure. So, you know, we have a uh, our first customer, our pilot project down in Long Beach. He initially he built a bunch of charging at his site and bought three different truck manufacturers, total of four trucks. He's since added to it, which is awesome as this experience uh, has been a good one so far. But uh, we have, again, three different brands of trucks that we're running over the past nine months, uh, around 100,000 miles so far, uh, doing daily service in and out of the port of Long Beach and out to uh, distribution centers. And so, you know, similar to uh, your EV, there's a whole range of different models with different performance characteristics out there. Uh, you can buy a Leaf with uh, 100 miles, or you can buy the long range Tesla with uh, 300 plus. The trucks that we have, the we've got some BYDs that are about 150 mile range, uh, and then some Volvos with a little over 250 mile range, which is absolutely sufficient for the use cycle, the, the service that they are doing, again, in and out of the port of Long Beach every day. The power is great. Uh, the torque is great. Uh, the drivers, let me just really drive in on this. 
love the vehicles. And so, sure, it's different. You got to think about your charge capacity. You have to plan ahead for how far you're going to go. The trucks are heavier. And so there are weight limits on roads. So you have to think about the weight of the uh, container. But the actual day-to-day experience, one of our customers, drivers, uh, Javier told me, he's like, look, my other truck, it had 13 gears on that. Like try clutching through like rush hour traffic on the Harbor freeway, you know, pulling a load. And he's like, (laughs) the electric truck is one pedal driving. And he's like, my hip, my knee has never felt better. It is like just a lot less hard on the body. People talk a lot about the noise and really the vibration as well. Like it is just, again, it is like the electric vehicles. It is a quiet, vibration-free, smooth experience with one pedal driving. And trucking can be hard on the body uh, with like a huge diesel engine that's uh, rattling away the noise, the fumes. When you, you get truckers driving them, people have to think a little bit differently about the service, but the actual experience, I haven't talked to a single person who didn't love it. Your mention of the uh, the impacts on the driver's bodies. I remember reading a study about that probably 20 years ago about how hard, like especially long haul trucking is on the people who drive the trucks. And I personally have a couple of friends whose fathers are individual owner operators and one of them does long haul, one of them does drayage. It's a rough job. And so moving from acknowledging that, you know, the way we ship stuff now is not ideal Tell us about the impacts that electrifying these these drayage fleets, uh, what's that going to have, what kind of an impact is that going to have on the communities who live right near the ports? You know, again, this is, you know, one of the, the big reasons and the rationales for why we urgently need this type of transition. You know, the emissions is not just the carbon, it's also the particulates. But if you, you know, you look at the statistics around port side communities, you're Wilmington in uh, the Los Angeles area, you know, cancer and uh, asthma incidences are are double than in communities that are farther away from uh, all that traffic. So these are non-trivial sources of, uh, of emissions that do have really negative impacts on human health and the environment. So going to zero emission, so you know we fuel these with uh, um, renewable electricity. You can procure those through our community choice aggregators or through SoCal Edison. Going forward, we'll also move to a community solar model once we get those rules and regulations move forward in California too. So the initial premise here of like we need to move to this to protect human health is crucial. The flips the other part of this is really also the climate concerns. And so I think you need to think about this not just as the emissions that come from this particular segment, drayage, but this is where we incubate and mature the technologies that are also going to be helpful for a much broader range of freight across the board. And this is how we catalyze the manufacturers to put in the uh, R&D, to build the production capacity, to build the technology. This is how we start the build out of all the charging infrastructure. And it's not just your your short-term impact on climate emissions. It's about how do, how do we go about transitioning the entire freight sector? And again, this is the, the first building block, the beachhead, if you will. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it because this is a huge problem. Um, you know, just the whole planet is wrangling with uh, how do we have a good climate future and still um, improve quality of lives and then maintain what we have in certain instances. It's interesting to me that Forum is kind of providing everything from the tool 
in the truck to the fuel, <laughs> which is the electrification, um, you know, of the charging stations. So you get the the ability to refuel, and then you're also giving them the fuel through the the companies you mentioned, or like Southern California Edison, for example. I work for a nonprofit here. UCS is is an NGO, but is this a model? that is going to work for a for-profit startup? Is this something that investors get really excited about? Because it sounds like you guys are you're taking a lot of risk up front and then to build the infrastructure, to lease out the trucks. Do you think this is going to be something that's sustainable and profitable for Forum and other companies that are similar? Yes, I do. And this has been the entire sort of theory of the case. Uh, my last 20 years was in solar and our focus there was it was a really niche technology that few took really seriously. It was incredibly expensive. It was a rounding error in the overall scheme of things. But the sum total was that it had some incredible advantages that uh, if you could bring to scale and bring down costs, you could end up uh, with a situation where it was an economic benefit. And our theory was like through scale, you brought down costs. And so last 20 years, that was the story. And now solar is the cheapest and uh, fastest growing source of new generation globally that there is bar none. And I would argue the foundation of our hopes in the fight against climate change. So if you're looking for this transition also on mobility and specifically on freight, uh, I think there is a similar opportunity that stuff's pretty expensive to begin with, but through scale, you can actually bring down those costs and you can get to a point where you have a service that ends up being both better and cheaper in the uh, in the long run and the long term. Right now, our model again is to build these charging depots, um, and we provide uh, charging as a service. So charging for a monthly fee if you have your own truck, you bring it, or we will provide a truck plus charging together. And our goal is to get that around diesel parity. I would just you know put a, a note here. You know, we would rather just do charging. Uh, it's a lot more simple. And we are involved in purchasing and leasing the trucks because the initial customers need that. They want that. They ask for that. Long term, that probably won't be our focus. That's where the, the truck manufacturers hopefully will be able to provide that service at scale and at a lower cost, and we will be able to do it. But right now, we will do whatever it is that our customers need in order to get, get this moving. Something you touched on earlier was the government incentives. And yeah. obviously, when we had um, low emission or zero emission vehicles previously in California, where, where you and I are, the government would provide access to the high occupancy vehicle uh, carpool lanes, or they would give you tax incentives. You know, here's $8,000 off for getting one of these cars, uh, leasing it or buying it. So how are government incentives how are they helping the switch to electrifying heavy trucks? And then, like, is there a time limit on those incentives now that you're you're working under? When you're looking at transport and trucking, like, there's a couple of different ways that money can enter the system to help bring down your you know, collective total cost of ownership. So, you can have incentives for the vehicles themselves, and so the California Air Resources Board does provide some direct incentives through a program called HFIP. I struggle to know exactly what that acronym is right across the top of my head. There is a small federal tax credit for it if you can actually utilize it. There are the other part of the challenge is building the, the infrastructure. So building charging infrastructure depots, the actual chargers themselves, all the wiring, the interconnect to the distribution grid, the land 
all that can be quite expensive. And so the California Energy Commission does provide a limited amount of incentives uh, on a competitive basis. Some of the air districts also on a competitive basis have a limited pot of funds to help support the initial depots on this. And there is also a federal tax credit for that. Again, not transformative, but we won't turn it down either. And then you can also provide incentives for the fuel, the charging itself. And so, you know, on the hydrogen side, if you're looking at hydrogen fuel cell, you know, there's a huge federal incentive for this that they're all figuring out how to deploy as we speak. On the electricity side, it's state level policy. And we have something in California called the low carbon fuel standard, which essentially provides like a downward trajectory on the carbon intensity of the fuels that get sold into California. And so if you have a high carbon fuel like gasoline, you need to buy offsetting credits of low carbon fuel. So in essence, uh, we will be selling or are selling uh, low carbon credits to gasoline sellers, and that will provide another revenue stream that helps offset the cost. Some of these are much more durable than others, like those truck incentives. Like there's not a long-term plan for this. There's not a 10-year ramp down on it. And on the low carbon fuel standard, that is a much more durable program that we believe will be really crucial into providing incentives for keeping the cost of fueling uh, as low as possible. You asked about risk earlier, and I think that frankly is the area of one of the highest risks is like, how do you, of the different programs, how do you bundle together like enough to again, get to diesel parity? And how do you continue that in a way that you can grow your operations as you collectively bring down costs is again, all the chargers that we're putting in, like, you know, these are really high powered chargers and they're from a bunch of companies that weren't doing this three, four or five years ago. They're in now and technology is moving quickly and there's a huge opportunity for continued cost reductions, but we're on the, uh, on the very early part of that S-curve. I think one of the interesting things about talking about this with you and just thinking about how technology has changed just in my 40, almost two years on the earth, it's really different. And the the thing that I keep noticing is that we have the technology, like it exists. And it's all about just getting that adoption to be more widespread and to making it economically feasible. And also just saying, we got to get rid of the old and bring in the new. And you've been personally involved with solar. And then now this how did you decide that your next step would be, you know, not solar specifically and moving into something that's really tangible in terms of how goods move? I mean, what, what made you make that leap over to Forum? Back in 2002, uh, I started a nonprofit called Vote Solar, and the focus was on developing the state level policy to catalyze these early stage solar markets to help grow market demand, to catalyze the building of new scale up in manufacturing to bring down costs. That was our initial premise in it over 20 years of working in probably over 45 states. And the organization grew from me and a buddy in a subleased office space in uh, south of market in San Francisco to where it is today. There's 45 lovely people working around the country in developing the state level policy, no longer under my leadership, under a very capable next generation of leaders. That effort was just a the joy of my life, uh, a really difficult but joyful ride, a lot of work, and it worked, right? That initial premise of uh, 
through scale and bring down costs and build the workforce and build the supply chains and of the future absolutely paid off on its premise. So after 20 years of doing that, I turned 50 and uh, I was like, you know, if I'm going to do something else, like my timeline is, uh, is getting shorter, I better, uh, better start doing it. It really also felt like it was time to give other people the opportunity for the best job in the world. It felt like I wanted to build some new muscles and have some new experiences. So I stepped down. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I spent some time thinking about it. And uh, I did a little consulting. And I knew I wanted to stay in climate. And I knew I felt like if I had any skill set, it was like thinking about like what are the things that we know that we need but don't yet exist. And um, I will be honest that drayage wasn't on the uh, top of my list. I frankly never even heard of it. But some colleagues that I'd met 20 years ago in the solar industry had started this company called Forum Mobility. In fact, Matt LeDuc, the CEO, you know, I first met on the roof of a uh, solar install at Google. He was the he was the foreman. He came up through the through the hands-on installation side, and so it just felt in a very similar space that there was nascent policy, nascent technology, a huge opportunity to address what is considered a really hard to decarbonize segment. And I felt like this was a space that felt like solar circa 2002 and uh, collectively that, that there was a huge opportunity to make a, to pull a very big lever and make a, a big change. So it's been a lot of work, but I'm really glad that uh, uh, I, I took a jump and uh, am focused on this next segment. Yeah, it sounds like you're pretty excited about it, and that's always good. We want people working on these transformative things um, who are really enthusiastic, so that's really great background, too. We are the Union of Concerned Scientists here, and so I have a question I always ask my guests, and so for you, Adam, uh, why are you concerned Oh man, um, I mean, for me, it's climate. I mean, there's a lot of threads that uh, come into all of this, but and it 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 always has been uh, very clear to me that we need to make changes in order to continue for our species to continue to uh, live in the climate that we that we evolved in and uh, losing that um, is not an experiment that we want to try. Um, I have a young daughter. Yeah, it just gets personal. I feel you, I feel you. Uh, you know, I, um, my family, we adopted a, a really awesome teenager from the foster system and I can't stop thinking about what the world is gonna be like for him long after we're gone. So. Um, I feel you right there. It's super personal. And I think that's what makes the work, whether it's nonprofit, government, for-profit, that's what makes it really meaningful. Oh, uh, you know, but I do want to just sort of shift as well to say that I feel like um, almost everybody, you know, wants to be working in a place and doing something that is larger than themselves. And all work is honorable is especially gratifying when you feel like you're doing something uh, and working in a space again, uh, trying to achieve something that is uh, that has a much more broad impact. And so 
I also feel very lucky to do this. And I spend a fair amount of time talking to people that are doing something else and want to get into climate because they crave that, uh, that a sense of job satisfaction that maybe they don't have right now. And so for those people, if they are listening, I would say, do it. The water's warm. Uh, jump in. And so if you're a lawyer, if you're a banker, uh, and you want to get in climate, do climate law, uh, do climate banking, uh, take the skill that you have and, uh, and make that switch. You won't regret it. Thanks to Rich Hayes, Omari Spears, and the UCS Clean Transportation Team for production help on this episode, and to Anthony Eyring for our multimedia magic. Catch you later, science crew.